I'm going to go back to the climate and environmentalist and activist view. I'll take the under on whether or not environmental activists allow these types of facilities to be built onshore or offshore in the U.S. We have a crisis of incompetence in the U.S. right now, whereby we have bureaucratic and environmental regulation that prevents any type of development. So if, if you think that the environmental activists are only going to protest the development and the build out of, a, of an oil and gas pipeline, and they're not going to protest the 10,000 acres that are needed to build a solar farm that we could have built a natural gas plant for one and a half acres, you're crazy. This is the Definitely Uncertain podcast brought to you by Goldwell Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Hi, welcome to the Definitely Uncertain podcast by Goldrock. I'm David Ram, partner at Goldrock, the more than 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth investors in Israel and around the world. And with me today is Zach McCarroll, our go-to guy on energy, partner at Apogem, a $37 billion alternative asset manager. And Zach oversees the Real Assets Investment Program. Good to see you again, Zach. All right. Good to see you. Thanks for having me again. And where, where are we catching you today? So I'm in Austin, Texas. Wonderful. Beautiful view well, in the background. I wouldn't say wonderful. We were on day 45 of over 100 degree temperature. Yes. Uh, it's rough. <laughs> Global warming. We'll have to get to that topic uh, during our, our conversation on energy. Um, yes. In Israel as well, it's been uh, in the neighborhood of 100 degrees for about a week now. So, um, But it's somewhat, you know, we're somewhat used to it, I think, on an annual basis. You have these periods, but okay. It's actually interesting just to get back to the energy topic as well, is because we, you and I have spoken a couple of times. The first time you and I spoke, you were one of our first guests on the podcast, actually, right after COVID started. We spoke about the energy markets right after COVID. You were sweating a little bit during that call, if you remember. It, it was, I think you called it energy Armageddon, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was. It was, that was, you do everything you can to underwrite risk and investments and portfolios. The global response that we had in 2020 and what that meant for energy markets, I'm not sure anybody underwrote a risk that extreme. And I'm really grateful that we built our portfolio in such a way that our company survived, have come out of it. And I think the best measure for that on did we do the right thing or, or were we investing the right way for our strategy, our total loss ratio across all portfolios is less than 5%. And that's under a circumstance where oil prices went negative and RIC count dropped by over 80%. That's, we're really proud of that. Yeah. Supply and demand both crushed, got, were crushed in a very short period of time. And the second time you and I spoke, also it wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a supply and demand shock like COVID was, but it was post a few months post the war, the invasion of of Ukraine, which of course created a bit of an energy uncertainty 
especially in Europe, but around the world, around who's going to supply energy and, and if they would be required to make up for Russia's Russia's supply, which seems to have not happened, frankly, but Russia seems their supply seems quite steady. But uh, over the years, but uh, but that was another conversation we had, which is interesting. So I think today, two things that are still very much at 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 hearts and minds in the energy space is still the war in the Ukraine, I believe, and also the IRA. Both are not brand new news, but they've been effective in terms of how we view the energy space. So starting with the traditional energy markets, let's just walk through what's been going on over the past year in traditional energy, oil and gas. One thing I've noticed a lot has been additional M&A activity, a big pickup in activity around M&A, in particular North America. Let's get what's been going on in North American oil and gas over the past 12 months or so. Yeah, no, good question. Uh, I'm going to expand the time frame a little Please. bit. Basically say... What, what's happened over the last kind of two to three years? Like, why are we where we are today? And what's the bigger picture on that? And I think it really relates to capital and kind of political posturing and positioning. So if I think about where we are on a global basis, global oil demand is, is in excess of where we were pre-COVID, right? The, the world still wants hydrocarbons. And I think the most interesting stat around that really paints the picture is that you, I'll come back to this later, but the, there are 1 billion people on the planet, which are the US, Canada, Europe, and Japan, that on average consume 16 barrels of oil per person. There are 7 billion people on the planet who consume between one to three barrels per person. If you assume any type of normal S-curve in growth and development for South America, Africa, the Middle East, most of Asia, the demand for hydrocarbons, even with significant installations of renewable and alternative energies, demand for hydrocarbon is not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. So that, that's page one. Page two of this would be your specific question of what's going on in, in oil and gas. For the really since the shale revolution, the US has been the only major producer in the world that has consistently grown supply. That growth in supply is what limited the effectiveness of OPEC, OPEC going back to kind of 2010 to 2020. Post and OPEC are a list of countries uh, that are about 13 countries or so in the in non-developed markets, I assume. That primarily the Middle East, right? When and, and that was the shale revolution created a competition for the marginal barrel between the United States and OPEC. Yeah. Said differently, the Saudis did not control the marginal barrel, which meant that they did not have the same amount of influence over global commodity price as it related to energy. Okay. 2020 hits in the U.S. We had a 15-year run of all upstream oil companies reinvesting capital at rates of over 100% to focus on production growth. Said differently, they had fixed high CapEx assets that they were running at the highest rate possible, reinvesting all of the cash flow, and they were destroying profits for shareholders, right? 
They were, they, were, they were building for growth. They were equity, building for equity growth. value and growth. That's right. Arguably equity value. They destroyed equity value well, over, over that period of time, which is part of why so many investors were down on traditional energy for, right. for years. Um, but if we look at what's happened today, so when 2020 hit, prices went negative and rig counts were slashed dramatically. Every operator in North America, specifically the U.S., had to right-size their balance sheet, focus on production, and manage cash flow. And so what you saw was a return to discipline that existed in this industry prior to the shale revolution. If I ask somebody 20 years ago, do you own Exxon stock? And if you do, why? They yeah. would have said, yes, they are consistent outperformers relative to their guidance. They pay a consistent distributable dividend. and it's a great company to own. That's the behavior that has occurred in the U.S. over the last two to three years. And what do I mean by that? Instead of reinvesting the cash flow for production growth, production in the U.S. has been flat since 2020. And that excess cash has gone into right-sizing balance sheets, paying off debt, or it's gone to buying back shares or making a dividend, depending on the type of company we're talking about. Again, go through two to three years. What does that mean? It means they have not been investing for inventory or growth. And these are depleting assets. If we walk through big oil, ENP, and private equity, big oil has had, over the last five years, significant pressure from external shareholders, whether or not we want to frame that as ESG, or some other narrative. To diversify their, their sources That's a bit. That's right. It was activist shareholders like Engine Number 1 at Exxon. It was BP being forced to divest of their Alaskan assets. It was BP and Chevron recently announcing poor results from their renewable divisions and, and re-pivoting capital back. All while they generated the highest cash flows they generated in the history of their companies over yeah. the last two to three years. That turned into a dividend and it turned into buying back shares. So it was not used for investment. Okay. On the EMP, uh, with for the EMP companies in the US, those are the energy exploration or this is like Diamondback or Permian Resources or, or any of the groups that are exploratory oil and gas drillers in the US, small, mid, and even large caps, just not the big majors. Yep. Um, the, they have essentially shifted to that pre-shale model that I talked about. Okay. And they focused on operating results, existing production, and their reinvestment rate dropped from over 100% to 40% for the last three years. That's the lowest on record. And then in the private equity world, fundraising for traditional energy is down 80 to 90% from its peak. So this all paints a picture. The last three to five years have created a, a scenario where capital is extremely scarce and we are at the bottom end of the CapEx cycle. If you look at aggregate global CapEx, it's lower. It's declined every year for 10 to 15 years. Modest uptick over the last couple of years, but that was off of the, the bottom. Um, so we have a scenario where no capital is available. All companies have become in, internally focused. And we now have a situation where these companies need to buy inventory and in future growth. That's why you've seen the M&A boom 
or the A&D boom in the U.S. over the last two quarters. We've been fortunate to have a number of companies that have participated in that, mm -hmm. and we're excited about it. What's really interesting, and you may remember, we had this conversation probably 18 months or so ago. The argument was there is no exit market for a traditional oil and gas company. Yes. We've had multiple billion dollar exits in the yes. last couple of quarters. Yes. And it's all a matter of it takes time for the market and the players to get to a point where they have to capitulate. And we've seen that the bigger companies can no longer, they can no longer meet their earnings guidance and, and forecast if they do not become acquisitive. Yeah. Um, and, and they're not just using, and they're not just using that cash to be acquisitive for the transition companies, the companies that are providing future newer energy like solar or wind or otherwise, they're buying traditional upstream oil and gas companies, correct? That's correct. Does that indicate a bit of a psychology shift in terms of, you know what, I'm going to take some cash, I'm going to put it to work by buying a company in a in an asset where if I asked you 18 months ago, like you just said, that asset probably would be viewed as there's a terminal value of five years and then it goes to zero. But now maybe there's a perspective that those oil and gas assets have a much much more longevity to them. Is that kind of a psychology change in the marketplace? I think it's a reality. Whether or not psychology is psychology right. is changed or not, that's a that's a different question. Um, you sound like a, a psychologist. It's yeah, reality. Well, <laughs> you need to pay me by the hour and I'll never solve yeah. your problem and we'll keep going on and on. Exactly. Um, but look, China has already pulled out of any 2050 commitment around emissions reductions. Um, India has very clearly stated that they're going to do what's in their best interest. That's right. Um, as, okay. it, as it relates to growth. That's half of the world's population. And, right? and the majority so, of the, and a large portion of the pollutants, at least moving that, forward for exactly sure. Right. That's exactly right. And so, the, the simple reality is that the West, that 1 billion people that I talked about earlier, can reduce emissions entirely, and it will have no long-term impact if China, India, and the rest of the world continue to demand improvements in lifestyle and growth. Yes. And so what, what, one thing we haven't talked about that I think will frame this a little bit better over a year ago, I had a conversation where I was asked to talk about the moral and the ethical implications of energy and, and how do we think about that. And one of the things that I talked about in that kind of meeting was we have a situation where we've allowed kind of the environmentalists and the activists to define what is good or what is bad. And my particular view, and I think it, it can be pretty credibly argued is that we have a situation where the, the, it's not that the, the environmental or the activist view is immoral or Malthusian. And the reason I say that is it only considers their perceived impact of the environmental costs it does not think about the improvements and the benefits that have occurred for society over the last 200 years since we got to a point where we had low-cost, reliable, fungible energy that was transportable. Our life expectancies have increased over from 35 years of age to over 70. Our poverty has declined from average per capita GDP of less than $1,000 to over $10,000 globally. 
our increase in healthcare, education, and other things that are provided because we've had low-cost energy have fundamentally transformed the way and the conveniences and the luxuries that we have in modern life. Said differently, there's not another person at a different point in time in history that would choose to live where they were born and not experience what we have access to. And, and, so it's we, a, and it's a tough year to talk about it because I think a lot of people are blaming the heat in Austin and in Israel and other places of the world on on global warming. It's a longer conversation, obviously, but in terms of it's not only low cost, as you pointed out, it's also just twenty four seven electricity, which has been the, uh, one of the biggest drivers of. I always like to show the map of South Korea versus North Korea. One has the lights on at night, one has lights off right. at night. It's pretty simple. Who has a higher life expectancy? More food, more opportunity, more freedom. So if you're human-centric, hydrocarbons are going to be a, a major staple in your diet. Absolutely. And, and, and in terms, of, and in terms of, uh, of that transition, because people do blame whether or not it's morally correct or, or not, government incentive programs are being placed in front of us, in front of corporations, in front of all of us as investors and saying, hey, we're going to provide you massive incentive programs to transition from traditional energy sources of hydrocarbons into solar and wind and electric vehicles, those in particular. And, and I think the the headline of that has been the IRA. The, uh, the, uh, they always name, Congress always names the, the laws the exact opposite of what they do. So it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, and they printed $2 trillion. So in terms of the implications of, of the IRA in North America in particular when you're investing in oil and gas, and you're also investing in energy transition as well, how do you think about capital deployment, portfolio construction, and the headwinds versus the headwinds of oil and gas versus the tailwinds uh, of the transition? How do you think about that in portfolio construction terms? Yeah, so two two general points I'll make first, and I'll try not to be flipping on it, but I appreciate you saying we do more than just traditional oil and gas. We invest yeah. across all forms of private natural resources and everything from upstream, midstream, downstream services and infrastructure. So we do uh, invest in the energy transition opportunities as well. The second kind of maybe more flippant comment that I'll make, <laughs> there's a difference between raising money and making money. And the IRA has incentivized people to raise money and invest money. They have not incentivized people to turn a profit. And that is, or I should say, to return the investors a profit. They, hmm. They've incentivized people to develop and raise capital and take a, take a fee instead of maximizing and capitalizing on long-term capital appreciation. Hmm. Now we can argue that and over what period of time and I'm game to have that conversation. Okay. But but the IRA has created incentives that I believe are destroying capital. And I'll I'll ironically I'm going to go to China to talk about the impact of perverse incentives to drive investment. Okay. If we look right now, China is the world's EV leader as far as production and adoption. Electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, excuse me. That's fine. What we're seeing is a scenario where they overbuilt for not enough demand. And 
there are price wars going on in China right now over the initial price of an electric vehicle. Hmm. Tesla is immediately involved in that. And we're seeing a rash of bankruptcies around EV companies in China. That happened because there was a push and a drive to move forward when the market wasn't quite ready or wasn't fully transparent of the costs to implement. So that, that's one scenario of, as we think about this, what will be the long-term incentives if we, or the long-term outcomes if we have the wrong incentives on the front end? Yeah. Another way to think about that, you lived through the clean energy boom in the 2000s, right? Sure did. World was change. I was active in that space as well, in the solar energy that's space. Right. That's right. And some people made some really good money on the front end and venture-related technologies made some good money. Mass adoption did not occur, and a lot of people lost a lot of money yeah. betting on that transition. If I look at the IRA and I think about what, is it, what it is incentivizing, it's incentivizing mass adoption of wind and solar in the U.S. Yes. That, that, that's the ultimate goal. I'm going to go back to the climate and environmentalist and activist view. I'll take the under on whether or not environmental activists allow these types of facilities to be built onshore or offshore in the U.S. We have a crisis of incompetence in the U.S. right now, whereby we have bureaucratic and environmental regulation that prevents any type of development. So if, if you think that the environmental activists are only going to protest the development and the build out of, a, of an oil and gas pipeline, and they're not going to protest the 10,000 acres that are needed to build a solar farm that we could have built a natural gas plant for one and a half acres, you're crazy. Yes. There's got to be an issue around that. If we look around, so that's one issue. We can't get anything permitted. We can't get anything built and nothing happens quickly. The ability to actually implement the plan is stymied by regulation and policy. Yeah. The, the second piece of that is that we have an aging and old grid, power grid across the U.S. that's in multiple different regions and it's all interconnected and it works. But our investment in the grid and our ability to continue to maintain reliable supply of electricity has become far more volatile in recent years. And it doesn't matter if you're in a red state or a blue state. And I'll use California and Texas as my two examples. In Texas, during the winter and during the summer, we're dealing with whether or not it's ice storms that impact the grid or it's heat systems that impact the grid. And in California, it's they can't build anything, period. It's the Malthusian approach to we're not looking for the best outcome across multiple factors. We're looking to limit all activity. And because we've done that, it's impossible to think that we can convert a transportation fleet from localized fuel to regionalized electricity when we can't even expand the output of what our grid will produce. And the way that you see that, we've had, I think in the U.S., 2022 was the lowest year in the last five years of new transmission lines that have been installed. It, uh -huh. It's just impossible. And and you got to assume that as EV does get more and more adopted in the U.S., 
you got to assume that that moving essentially transportation fuel from gasoline to the grid is going to put a lot of stress on that grid beyond what people are investing in. Absolutely. So the, the, the point is, it depends on where you buy the EV. Okay. So you, if, you, if you're in the, let's call it, if you're in a, if you're in a region in the U.S. where the primary power supply is made up of coal and, and diesel and heating oil number seven and whatever it may be. Yes. And you have renewables, you have others. If you buy an electric vehicle, you still have to power it. You may not be going to the gas station to get whatever type of ethanol blended fuel that you that your local gas station sells, but you're using whatever power is available at that point in time. So if it's at if if it's at night and solar is your kind of backup or your primary generator during the day, but you yeah. have to have other power at night, you're using coal to power and electrify your car, right? And, and, and then you have to look at where was that car manufactured? Where was it built? Where did the materials come from? What does that mean? We need to be, we need to be practical and honest about what is the full life cycle impact of emissions related to different technologies. And yeah. in this case, we're talking about electric vehicles or ICE cars. And unfortunately, what you find it all depends on who's creating the assumptions to find out which one has and exhibits the largest emission profile, right? So it's, just taking a step back for one second, if I may, and, and looking back at the oil and gas space in context of what we're talking about with the transition, what you've been speaking about a little bit has been the flat nature of supply. There's been, there has not been an increase too much or not at all, on non-OPEC country production of oil and gas. OPEC as well has been quite flat. Demand has increased. Since COVID, for sure, it's been going up and up, in particular from get for gasoline, for jet fuel. That's been a, a major driver of, of oil, in particular, uh, a demand. So if you have flat supply and increased demand, what you typically see is a price increase. But the prices haven't dramatically moved they, you know, they were up. They were at, I don't remember pre-war. It was sixty, seventy dollars a barrel. It went up to a hundred, maybe ninety, a hundred. Then we came back. Now it's at seventy-five, eighty. It's not like we're we've blown out the prices of oil or, or natural gas too much, even though supply has been flat, demand has been increasing. And it, from what we're talking about right now, we got to assume that demand is going to continue to increase and increase. And su supply doesn't sound like there's a lot going on in terms of efforts to increase supply. So what are we looking at in terms of why is the pricing where it is today? And what do we think about, about oil and gas prices in the future? And by the way, it's related to the IRA. It's related to the transition that we're talking about as well towards solar and wind and, and EV. Because as you just pointed out, even if you buy an electric car, you're essentially going to require hydrocarbons to fuel uh, that and maybe coal versus gasoline, but we're still using hydrocarbons. So how do you look at the term, the, the perspective of supply and demand and pricing in that market? Yeah. So gr great point. I'm going to give maybe two or three possible answers to the question. And, and the reality is it's some impact of all of them and probably some that, that I don't address. Um, but I think these are some major ones. A larger kind of picture is the energy business broadly is extremely entrepreneurial and 
I would argue that not just the energy business, but the way that we manufacture and the way that our industrial systems work, we are in a constant, at least when I say we, the U.S., yes. is in a constant, how do we improve? How do we get better output from less input, right? How do we optimize what we're doing? How do we make our, how do we make our cell phone lighter, faster, better battery storage? Like it is a constant process of improvement. Mm. There's not a product in your house that hasn't been improved over the last year, if not dramatically improved over the last 10 years. So my point on that is we can have, continue get, head get more, get more juice out of the lemon. That's right. How do we optimize and be more efficient? Said differently, how can we have increasing demand, flat supply, and still get those two to balance? So I think that's a major thing that we don't mm. price in. There, there are no climate models that price in human ingenuity and creativity over the next 10, 20 years for how we're going to capture carbon. They just model in whatever the assumptions are today and promote out whatever that's going to look like in 50 years. Right. But we're not talking about the fact that in the 1960s, it was, we're worried about overpopulation and everybody's going to die. Or the 1970s, it was an ice age. Or the 1980s, it was acid rain and a hole in the ozone layer. And just fast forward, right? We're not thinking about how are human beings going to adapt and better use and utilize the resources that have been given to us. That's right. Or said differently, how are we a better steward of the environment, right? That's right. And I think the energy business is critical for that because that's number one. Number two, why have prices not spiked or stayed elevated like they did right after the Ukrainian war or the, the invasion or whatever we're supposed to call it? It's awful, whatever it is. But the prices spiked, and at least oil prices spiked to over 120. Yes. Gas prices, depending on where you were regionally, were hyperbolic. Okay. A couple of things have happened. Number one, Russia has continued to flood the market. So this idea that on a yeah. global basis, the West can- They have customers. Buy. They got customers. That's right. And, and it's fungible. Even if we say we're not going to buy from them, others will. And a hydrocarbon molecule is the same in the US as it is in Senegal, as it is in Australia, as it is in Korea. It's really just, it's, I think it's a, it's a policy that's not effective. Yes. So Russia has continued to produce, they've continued to sell, and that's been one issue. Another issue which doesn't get enough promotion, and this is what really scares me. The U.S. is one of the only countries that has a major strategic petroleum reserve. We started that in the mid-70s after the last huge inflationary period in the U.S. And we grew that from the 70s until 2021. We grew that to 750 million barrels of oil, like a massive stockpile. Essentially, in case of World War III and someone's bombing the, uh, the facilities to produce oil and gas, we have a reserve that will last us a few months to That's maintain right. human life, essentially. That's right. Since inception, when we began this back in the mid-70s, yep. it grew every single year consistently up to almost 750 million barrels in 2021. To match demand, the size of the, the, the population and, and energy requirements, et cetera. 
strategic buying at different points in time, right? Okay. You can go back, you can pull a chart from the EIA of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and see this. Yes. Here's what's scary. There had never been an annual year where we had a de- like a major decline. We went up and then we flat, like you, you, but it was pretty steady grip. Since 2021, current administration, we have had 16 now consecutive months where we have released oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We went from a peak of 750 million barrels to we are now at 350 million barrels. We've decreased that by over, right at about 50%, 45, whatever, 50%. We now have less than 20 days of inventory in the U.S. That in and of itself is not a problem because we've become more efficient with how we transport and we deliver things globally and how interconnected we are. But this is the lowest level of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve since 1983. And we're now in a situation where we've increased our risk or we've reduced our margin. We got to get it all right. If we don't get it right, there's not as big of a reserve as there used to be. But put, the putting, rationale, putting, aside, putting aside the security issue, which is interesting, or the, that also means that they, for lack of a better term, they flooded the market with 400 million yes. barrels. Yes. Let's assume for a moment the U.S. stops flooding the market and want to maintain a 350 million barrel reserve because they're not going to go to zero, I hope. And at the same time, supply is not increasing from non-OPEC countries. What's going to? So it sounds to me like what you're saying is two things. One, efficiency is improved, and we haven't priced that in. That's very interesting. Second thing is, actually, what's happened is the production has been flat, supply has been flat, demand has grown, but the differential has been answered with existing reserves, essentially. Yes. If that stops to be done, the price is going to go up, right. I can only assume. So, so what I'm arguing is that it, it pretty much that exact argument, which is prices spiked. There was a ton of political pressure for prices to come down. Russia right. continued to flood the market. Right. And then the U.S. has aggressively said... We went back 40 years in time of what our reserve margin should be, aggressively flooding the market with additional barrels. So there were barrels of supply that were available for purchase that are not, it's not sustainable to continue to release that. If for whatever reason, the U.S. stops releasing from the strategic reserve, now Russia is the only group that is meeting excess demand, hmm. right? And so what happens? And, and by the way, what was the ultimate impact of the policy? The policy was supposed to hurt and harm Russia. And instead, they're still finding in markets to sell their resources. Yeah. And, and I, I really, I don't want to turn this political in any way because there are credible arguments for that, that course of action. Yeah. But we need to be, we need to, again, we need to be practical and we need to allow fulsome conversations of the trade-offs and the impacts of different decisions instead of allowing the one person who shouts the loudest in 140 characters to tell us what to do. Yeah. Got you. No, it's really interesting. And it's, it's going to be a challenge, but, but you're indicating that perhaps prices would go up. And in that call, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you now, because the last time you and I spoke, 
Uh, yeah, that's right. You know where it's going. The, the last time you and I spoke, I asked you for an interesting investment idea. It was about 11, 12 months ago. And your idea, just to refresh the audience's memory, was to think about the liquid markets, the stock market, and the U.S. oil field services in particular in that area that you felt it would be an outperformance of the U.S. stock market. Over the past 11 months, 12 months or so, markets are up about 7% because there was a big dip in 2022, as everyone remembers. Oil field services are basically up about 45%. So good call on that. And so we're, to, to continue listening to your wisdom and guidance, as a, without, we're not giving anyone investment advice, obviously, here, but just as, a, as an idea, what are you thinking about in, in, in terms of the market you're involved with? What are you thinking about? What, what do you think is going to be working over the next six months? Again, just to refresh, headwinds around certain aspects of energy, tailwinds in other areas, but yet just realities have to kick in as well. And that's, I think this this conversation has provided some complexity, added some complexity around what the market actually is, ha- what's happening in the market, because it's not just clear supply numbers, demand numbers, or IRA bills or whatever. There's a lot going on under the under the hood to understand where things can move and why. Let's hear what do you, what do you got for us? Yeah. Okay, so I will try to avoid stepping out of my comfort zone. So I'm not going to make a random call on biotech or something. <laughs> yes. Let's keep um, it let's keep it in your expertise area. I'll yes. It, I'll keep it in this in this range. So I, look, you, your returns are a mix of your the risk profile that you're willing to take, right? And you need to think about risk adjusted returns. I, I think the risk in the market is really high right now. Um, I think it's high in the sense of, for some of the reasons that we talked about, that the margin of safety related to supply and demand is higher, is less than it used to be, meaning the potential volatility of pricing is elevated. I think that interest rates are difficult to predict what that will mean for consumer behavior and how that may impact demand going forward. When I look at the public markets, I'm cautious, but because the only thing I can really talk about is how would you deploy public money right now? What I would say is if we look at energy broadly and we look at the valuation metrics relative to other sectors, they're pretty attractive, right? And, And when I say energy, I'm talking more traditional upstream kind of oil and gas. So I think that if you're looking for a relative trade-off, how is energy going to perform relative to other subsectors? That that could be one call. And the, the rationale of that is from a value perspective of, number one, either other sectors are overvalued and are going to be paired back and energy would be paired back less, which doesn't mean you made any money. It just means that it didn't have, big, didn't have a big draw, but drawdown. And but maybe so differently, what I would look at is who are those energy kind of midstream and upstream companies that have either implemented kind of consistent dividend practices or policies over the course of the last, I don't know, two to four quarters. That could be some combination of MLPs or big oil, et cetera, 
And I would look at that as a proxy to fixed income, right? How can I generate a yield in an asset that's really liquid that may outperform a different sector or a different asset class because the market doesn't appreciate the cash flow characteristics? Yeah. No, I think that's interesting because also everything is smart in hindsight, but this year, obviously, everyone was talking about the magnificent seven the the tech companies that just crushed it this year and kicked up the equity markets across the board because they're such large companies as well, large components of the indices. And if you look backward, really, it was just like the rates went up and the market was looking for cash generative growing companies that don't have a lot of debt on their balance sheet. And, and those were the companies, right? Obviously, there was the AI story as well on top of that. Right. But but that seems to be a, a big benefit, I think, in the energy space where the leverage today is much lower than it used to be in the old days. I think there's a lot of con- kind of a condensing on the leverage side in the energy space and a lot of cash generation in a high rate environment. I think that's quite an attractive place to uh, to look look at, at as well. I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, Zach, this has been is great. It's always good to get your perspective Again, update on the market you're involved with, and hopefully wiser minds will prevail moving forward about policy and about how we how we build this up over the next number of years. And we'll be watching you, and we'll be continuing the chat, and really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Always a pleasure to speak with you, and look forward to hosting you in Austin soon. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you so much. Take care. Right. Thanks, for everyone. Thanks, for everyone, for listening as well. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.